All right, week number four. Is that right? Week number four. We're going to learn more Old Testament tonight. Are you ready for that? That's good. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us through this process. Pray with me, please. God, we thank you very much for your word that you've told us is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. That When we read it and study it, it pierces down to where we live, all the way down to our motives, our thoughts, our intentions. And God, we know that to maximize our understanding of your word, to interpret it rightly, we need to understand its historic context, the framework of how you had pieced it together. Important to know the flow of redemptive and, and biblical history. These are important things that we need to learn, and God, we're not learning them in school when we're growing up. We're not getting a good handle on them in, uh, in the media. We, we, need, we need the church to provide opportunities like this for us to gather and, and study and think and rethink and be refreshed in these truths that some in this room have learned some many years ago, but we need to have them surface in our own thinking so that we can understand and handle your word rightly. And you tell us that we ought to work hard at that. So we want to uh, apply our thinking after this long day, and I pray that you would keep us alert and attentive and that you teach us something that would be helpful in our understanding of your word. Be in our brains in a way that keeps us thinking crisply about all this. Be in our energy, our, our just in, in animate our, our strength and all that is needed for our faculties to pay uh, close attention to these things. And I pray it would be helpful tonight as we get our minds calibrated and adjusted and thinking rightly about you, thinking your thoughts after you as you've revealed them to us in your word. So God, we commit our time and ourselves to you afresh now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Three books will be the goal tonight. Three books. Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. So let's begin. We've got Genesis through Deuteronomy, I trust, at least the 30,000-foot view of that in our minds. Let's see what we can do with the book of Joshua. Let's talk about the title here for just a second. Joshua, of course, is the main character of this book. He was, as we said last time, Moses' lieutenant, his successor, his disciple, not just his political or military helper, but his spiritual disciple as well, going up to the Mount Sinai, taking Joshua up further than the rest. This is a very important player in God's economy, Moses being extra special and Joshua now taking the baton and the mantle from Moses. He's obviously the main character in the book. He happens to share the name with the Messiah, the proper name of the Messiah, that is Yeshua. Yeshua in Hebrew, anytime you see something ending with an E-L, as I've said, you know you've got the word Elohim in it. Uh, you've got a lot of these Hebrew names that are compounds of God's various names. Sometimes Yahweh is part of the, the name as it is here. Yeshua is a compound of Yahweh and and the Hebrew word for saves, the verb to save. So when we say saves, we're saying, or when we say Joshua or Yeshua, that's the Hebrew word Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. Now we pull that into English and we call it Joshua. But if you're going to take it from Hebrew into Greek and then into English, then it turns into the word Jesus. So Jesus is the Greek form of the word Yeshua. Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek, the main character who now delivers the people of Israel and brings them in as the conqueror into the promised land, Jesus is named by God's design and his choice, the same name as Joshua. We know him as Jesus. That's the title of the book. The main concept of the book, as I told you, when we looked at the timeline chart, we built those foundational books that we uh, advance, that we studied to advance the history of Israel. The key word I gave you there was conquest. When I say conquest, we're talking about the conquest of the land of Canaan. 
conquest of the land of Canaan. The people have been wandering for 40 years. Now they're going to occupy the land. And the Lord is going to save them. We talk about Yahweh saves, and we're going to tie his name together with this role. He's saving them from slavery in Egypt, and now he's providing them a new home. Would have been nice from our perspective to see that follow directly upon the Exodus, but it doesn't. And in God's timing, and for many reasons, one of them we'll look at tonight, we have this delay that all works into God's providential plan to bring them in 40 years later. The Lord saves from slavery, and he provides his people with a home. And as you remember, the key covenant, the foundational covenant in Genesis chapter 12 is the Abrahamic covenant, and part of that covenant is fulfilled in this uh, act of occupying the land. Remember Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, go from your country, God said to Abraham, and your kindred, your family, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. Ur of the Chaldeans at the bottom of Mesopotamia, way out east, across the desert. He goes up and around to find this land, and at least sojourn through the land that one day he will have his descendants occupy. And ultimately, the ultimate descendant, the Messiah, will set up a kingdom there in that land. We'll talk more about that in the books that follow. The important dates that we need to remember, and you know this one, I hope, and can memorize it, 1445 B.C. All these dates are B.C., of course. I don't take time to designate that. We have the exodus from Egypt, 1445. And as you looked at in our timeline at the very beginning, that's a key date and an important one for you to remember and memorize. From 1405 to 1400, you have the conquest of the land, and that is the focus of this book, the book of Joshua. Of course, the 40 years in between, we know, are the promised years of wandering in the desert so that God could systematically pick off all the adults in the nation of Israel because of their disbelief at Kadesh Barnea. So this is uh, an accelerated death rate, as Psalm 90 says, where people start dying even before their time, as Moses laments in Psalm 90. And so we've got 40 years between 1445 and 1401. Five, and then we have the conquest here, conquest proper for about five to seven years, if you look closely at the dates, and we can see that later as we continue with some timelines in the next book as to why we're dealing with about a seven-year period here, five to seven years. But we'll rough and dirty this estimate from 1405 to 1400. The events covered in the book start in 1406 because as you read in the beginning of the first chapter of Joshua, we're still looking at that transitionary period and the crossing the Jordan and preparing for the conquest of the land all the way to 1390. And 1390 is an important date because that is when we have the firsthand accounts of what's going on in Joshua coming to an end uh, with the death of Joshua. More on that in a minute. So those are important dates and key dates to keep in mind. Give you a bit of the, gives you a bit of the important dates that surround the events in Joshua, and we'll give you the time frame for this book. The authorship of the book is traditionally stated to be Joshua. It's not expressly stated in the book, although there are hints to authorship because of the first-hand account as it relates to what's going on in the book, as it's spoken of, and as it's relayed to us in first-hand grammar. Uh, we even see at the end here, and I know this is specifically dealing with just that covenant in chapter 24, but in verse 26 of Joshua 24, it says, and Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. Even that, if you just take what's going on there in the 24th chapter, and here he writes this, and it's understood to be part of the law of God, which to them at that particular point in history was Genesis through Deuteronomy. That's the kind of hint that we see in this text that's led the rabbis from the beginning to attribute this book to Joshua, even though there's no explicit reference to that in the book. So we're going to say Joshua, that has been the long-standing tradition because of hints like that in the book. The key chapter, as I told you, as we were going through the chart at the very beginning, those 11 timeline books, is chapter 6, which is the Battle of Jericho, the very uh, non-conventional, unconventional defeat of the stronghold right in the center of the Promised Land, as we'll see. 
The key people, of course, are Joshua. Joshua is obviously key. He is called in chapter 11, verse 28, a minister. So he's more than just a military leader, as I said. He's a witness to the sacred tasks in the book of Exodus. He's described as a young man in Numbers 33. He proved himself as a commander early on when he fought the Amalekites uh, in chapter 17. Joshua is a very important key figure. He often is dwarfed by the overwhelming reputation of Moses. But if you didn't have Moses standing right next to Joshua, uh, most of us would revere him much more than we do in biblical history. He is a zealous guardian of God's uh, work among the people and a bold and courageous man of faith as we saw at Kadesh Barnea. Just to give you a sense as you envision these things historically, He's 55 years old uh, at the Exodus. So he's a young man because you remember the time frames are not dying at 70, 80, or 90. We got time frames at this particular point in biblical history uh, to 110, 120, 130. And he is 55. And if you think about what was going on, at least genetically here in the time spans of the early books of the Bible, uh, he's a young, strong military leader. By the time he goes into the land as a spy chosen from the tribe of Judah and comes back and says, we can take these guys even though they're a lot bigger than us. So if you think that through and you just add the numbers here to the wanderings, by the time he gets into the military position of taking the mantle from Moses, he's 95 years old. And again, you've got to somehow proportionally put that in context of the lifespan at that particular time because he dies younger than Moses, but he dies 10 years earlier than Moses at 110 years old, according to chapter 24, verse 29, which by the way is a lot like Deuteronomy. It's the one paragraph, if you go to the very end of Joshua, that we'd say, of course, Joshua didn't write that last paragraph, much like the end of Deuteronomy, where you have that depiction of Moses' death that uh, everyone has attributed the Pentateuch, at least conservative scholars and people that take the word seriously, to Moses, and yet there's a depiction at the very end of his death, and so it is with the book of Joshua as well. The other key player in the book, of course, is Caleb. Caleb is very important and uh, was along with... um, Joshua, one of the ones that came back, that of the 12 spies, he was the one that came back. I said that um, I said that Joshua was from the tribe of Judah. That is wrong. Caleb is from the tribe of Judah. So scratch that if you wrote that down in your notes. Caleb is the one who represented Judah going into the promised land as one of the 12 spies. And he comes back and sides with Joshua in saying, we can take these uh, Canaanites, and we should. He's 40 years old at the Exodus, so he's younger than Joshua. And he gives a speech in the 14th chapter of, Judge, of Joshua, and he is he's giving a time sequence there, which gives us his age. He's 85 years old, so five years after the conquest began, he gives that speech in chapter 14, and so you get a sense of his age. He is rewarded for his faithfulness and his zeal and his courage on the battlefield. He asks for some special inheritance and allotments and cities and Uh, we had more time, we'd look at some of the specifics of that. But Joshua and Caleb are the two key players that we want to highlight in this book. A simple outline for the book, first five chapters are getting us ready to get into the conquest of the land, the first five chapters. We won't get any more detail than that on our outline, but in chapters 6 through 12, if I told you the key chapter is chapter 6, the battle of Jericho, now you know we're already into the battle. That's the first battle in the conquest of the land, and so that takes place all the way through chapter 12. And just to give you some completeness and to think this through and even to give you some tie into an idiom in our language, you need to know that it starts right in the center of that map that I gave you above the Dead Sea. They come across from the east going toward the Mediterranean Sea and they start there with the stronghold of Canaan, which is Jericho, the oldest city, 
archaeologists call, call it the oldest city in the world because of its archaeological digs that have been done there. Nevertheless, the city of Jericho there in the middle of the country is critically important, and God wouldn't even allow them to fight. He just allowed them to trust him and watch God fight for them, and then said, I'm not even going to let you take any of the plunder, which is not normally how this works, and it's not how it worked later, but much like the principle of the first fruits, when you were to go out as a farmer and harvest your land, the first of what you got was to be given completely to God as an act of faith. So here they were, desert dwellers and nomads coming into the land, needing lots of things, and they destroy the Los Angeles, if you will, of the the land of Canaan, and they're told they can't take anything. They're to destroy it all. And you understand, if you know the book, that coming right after Jericho was a very small city by comparison, the city of Ai. And because we had one guy and his family that uh, took something, he took something, and his family covered it up with him from the ban in Jericho. I mean, he couldn't resist the things that were available, and most warriors would want to take. He took it, hid it, and God then allowed Israel to suffer defeat at Ai. And it wasn't until there was repentance. And I love the way God responds. Joshua's on his face and crying, saying, what's going on? Uh, how can we lose? And God says, get up. There's sin. Let's fix it. It's not time for crying or grieving. It's time to repent and to call out the one who had compromised on this band. So anyway, after Ai, after Jericho, then there was a southern campaign, which is described in chapters 9 through 10 as the cities of the south. The strongholds of the south were defeated by the armies of Israel. And then they moved up north in chapter. 11 through 12. The end of the book, the second half here, is all about the settling of the land. The land is going to be parceled out and apportioned and allotted to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I know, you know we don't have a big workbook full of maps, but at least I gave you one simple map to start with the concept of what they did in coming into the promised land. Matter of fact, we get an idiom out of this. You'll see coming in from the east, crossing the Jordan River, with a miracle, by the way, that looked a lot like crossing the Red Sea. It was God's imprimatur on Joshua's authority by saying, listen, I was with Moses and did this great miracle coming out of Egypt. I'm going to do a mini miracle. It's still a big miracle. It's a GT1 in making this Jordan River go dry so that the armies can walk across the the, the river of Jordan. Anyway, they come in through this central campaign right here in the middle of the country, and then they split to the south and, and take the strongholds of the south, and then they move to the north. This is where we get the phrase divide and conquer. This is the, this is the, the biblical reference for that, uh, though it's not stated per se in Scripture that way. That's the campaigns of, the, of Joshua. Come in, break the nation in half, and then go get the divided parts, and that's exactly what they did, with the exception of Ai, but once they repented, God got them back in line. Well, the thing we got to deal with in Joshua, which I'm sure everyone is going to uh, throw at you as a modern Christian in a modern world, I should say a traditional Christian in a modern world, believing the Bible for what it is, is what's with all the killing in the book of Joshua. Matter of fact, the pejorative way to put it is this sure looks like God is in favor of genocide. All these people peacefully sitting on their front porches, and here come the Israelites thinking they have some kind of entitlement to the land, and they're killing everybody. Matter of fact, the way that's put in Scripture is they are to kill everything that breathe. So you're killing men, women, and children. This is not like putting soldiers, putting uniforms on and going up into battle like you had with the Philistines. What's going on with that? So let's think through this a little bit. If you were to answer someone, come up to you, why in the world would God, if you read through Joshua, allow this kind of maltreatment, that's how they might put it, this genocide of the Canaanite? 
First thing I've got to say is, if you're going to take Joshua chapter 6 through 9 or chapter 6 through 12 or all the way through the, the northern campaign and say, this is just a travesty. I want to tell you, this is nothing new at all in the Bible. As a matter of fact, this has gone on in many places. Think about Genesis chapter 6. You want to talk about everything that breathes, men, women, and children. Let's just include all the animals on the planet as well. Not to mention, he destroyed the environment in, in that uh, flood. And I don't just mean he destroyed the land. He destroyed what was going on in the atmosphere. God took the planet and destroyed it. Now, you remember in Genesis chapter 6 how he explained the destruction of the world at that particular point. He said, you guys are in sin, and I'm going to kill you. That's the warning, and he proceeds with his plan, and he wipes everyone out. We read it. I mean, I'm not even out of Genesis yet, and I see the whole thing happen again to another set of cities in the plain, starting most notoriously with Sodom and Gomorrah, an entire city. Uh, They were told that they were in sin, and they were living wickedly before God. God is holy and we're going to destroy your city, and he does. Destroys it all with fire and brimstone, as the Bible says. Not to mention, and it's not that God is mad in the Old Testament, chills out and gets you know, real loving in the New Testament. The promise in the New Testament is in 2 Peter chapter 3, one day he's going to do the same thing to this world, and he's going to lay it bare by fire, the Bible says. The book of Revelation. I still wonder at people who you know want to zero in on the quote-unquote genocide of Joshua that don't recognize that that's the promised event on God's calendar is to kill everyone on the planet. And 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 so you, you know, if you want to move away from genocide, if you want to put it that way, then you might as well pick a different religion and say, I, I guess I'm not going to be a Christian. I'm not going to believe the Bible. You can't be a Jewish either because, you know, a lot of this is in the Old Testament. So this is nothing new. This is nothing new at all. The promise has been from the beginning that there is a connection between sin and consequence and consequence ultimately is far reaching and systemic on the planet and in society that there are wages of sin that will then mean that everyone on the planet is subject to death. And that death is not a one-for-one correspondence, as John 9 says. It's not because you sin and then you have a child that's blind, or it's not that you sin and you get cancer. There's no one-to-one correspondence. God has cursed the earth, and every molecule of the universe is subject to the kind of judgment that God brings on people all the time. I mean, you can go to Chalk Hospital. There are children right there, right now, suffering in neonatal ICU. There's all kinds of children at Shriners Hospital with all kinds of birth defects. These kinds of things are happening, and there are deaths and funerals for children and adult, all, all, adults all the time. I mean, this is the reality of living on the planet. It's interesting how in our culture we've swept death into the you know recesses and shadows of our culture so no one has to see it. We don't even get to see the killing of the animals that we eat to sustain our lives, let alone our loved ones that die, we want to make that as sterile and as unseen as possible. And yet that daily, regular death rate that continues on every single day is a theological response of God to a planet that says, you guys are sinners and all of you are now subject to death. In that regard, Genesis 3 promises that God says, I'm going to kill everyone on the planet. Everyone. That's going to be the promise that I bring to you because you are living now on a fallen earth. And if you say, well, what about children? They are all a part of this fallen economy. And therefore, they're subject to it. Just like the the uh, creation, as it says in Genesis, uh, in Romans chapter eight, is not subjecting itself to corruption.
corruption by its own will, but by the one who decided to do this. There's no need for doctors. There's no need for physical therapy. There's no need for in, you know, uh, vaccinations. There's no need for uh, you know, the coffin industries. None of this would, you wouldn't need any of this were it not for God's promise that he is going to either systematically or occasionally in some catastrophic way kill off human beings on the planet. And if you want to somehow free God from that responsibility, then you're not, you don't have both eyes open. When I see these people, as I like to say, with their kitty cat kind of Christianity and their butterflies and rainbows and all the things saying, well, God is a God of love and kindness and all the rest. I'm thinking to myself, you must be living in the closet and you don't understand anything about the reality of pain and suffering. Just live as a pastor for a month and go from hospital visit to prayer list to to funerals to grieving families and, and you'll recognize this is what the whole entire planet is full of. Now you get these college kids on college campuses at universities that are freaking out for the first time because a professor is taking them to the book of Joshua and saying, look at the genocide in this passage. All I'm telling you is this is nothing new. This is the promise from the beginning. And if you don't feel it, see, because you buy your hamburger off of a, a, a glossy menu and, and you never go past a, a, a tombstone because they're all tucked away behind hedges in, in, in places you never go, then you're living in, in a make-believe world. The world that we live in is full of these things. And this is the problem that used to be the starting point for philosophers and, theo- and theologians to say, what what is this all about? Why is this here? Let's deal and grapple with the problem of evil. Today, we don't do that much, particularly as we insulate our children and they grow up in their cocoons with their screens and you know they're, they're overweight and they have all the food they could ever eat. They have all the toys they could ever play with. We send them off to school and they finally grapple with the problem of evil for the first time in their philosophy 101 class. This is absurd. It's time for all of us to stand back and wake up and say, when it comes to all the killing, the killing has been going on. And if you want to blame someone for it, ultimately, I guess you could say God is the one who promised it, and he is guaranteed that he's going to carry it out. And it's being carried out sometimes directly, not directly, he doesn't just zap people dead, it's indirect, but it's through inanimate objects like rain or fire. Well, in this particular book, it's through spears and swords, or sometimes through the falling down of, of, of walls and rocks and, and, and uh, boulders upon people in their homes. And just like, it's like when the towers came down at 9-11, you know, people were shocked. The whole, con- the whole conversation for months was, God, 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 and I'm thinking every single one of those people in those towers was going to die anyway. You understand? We're all destined to die. And again, I think you must not know anyone who's old, or you must not ever have a friend that dies in a car accident, or you've never been to the children's hospital. This is going on all the time, and we need to not be so insulated that we don't recognize that this is nothing other, if you want to put it crassly, than the carrying out of God's promise to a fallen world, a sinful world, that there will be consequences that don't have a one-to-one correspondence to a volitional decision, but God says you're going to live in a world full of pain and suffering. It's just for a time though. That's the side of God that we always preach, and we should preach it, but the side that makes that so precious to the Christian is understanding the backdrop of sin and judgment. What's with all the killing? Well, the principle is easy. The wages of sin is death. We live in a sinful world, and when we sin, every one of us from the very beginning against the backdrop of the holiness of God deserves to die. We all deserve to die. You can get on any any news broadcast, watch them. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. They'll have the top story of the person that got run over in a hit and run or stabbed or shot in, in South Central or whatever. You have all of that stuff, and then you get the interviews, and everyone says they don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. No one deserves this. They don't deserve it. And all I'm telling you is the biblical principle is everyone in this world is a sinner attached to the sinful family of humanity. We are all subject to death, and we are all a rebel race, and we all are 
unfortunately, under the sentence of death. Pattern, though, needs to be understood. The pattern from the very beginning, as Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 7 says, is persistent warnings. God wants you to choose life. He has gone to great lengths to have you avoid death. Not the physical death that we will all incur, but what comes with that, the ultimate loss and the ultimate separation and the punishment that comes on the other side of that. It's appointed a man once to die and no one's getting out of that. But then comes the judgment. Well, you can be freed from that, the Bible says. And even in the judgment of a war or a flood or a fire, the Bible says that when you see these things coming as a result of God's judgment, there is always persistent warning. Jeremiah 11, 7 says, for I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, obey my voice. And that is a crystal clear, repeated, consistent principle you see throughout the Bible from beginning to end. That's why when God says to Adam and Eve, when you eat the fruit, the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. Now they died, certainly in terms of relationship. And they were one day going to die biologically, at least completely, because the moment that, that God cursed the fabric of the, of the ground, he, he, he cursed the fabric of their lives, and they began the process of dying. But God said, I'm not going to do it in totality now. I'm going to give you time. And in that time, I will persistently warn you. And he does. And in every, every you can't find judgment in the Bible without God sending his spokespersons first and saying, I'm warning you to either mitigate this or completely avoid it. And that's the pattern of scripture. And it's one that we should always think about when we think about what's going on in this situation in Canaan. The situation in Canaan, I guess I should say this, there's a very clear, even for skunks, there are certain skunks that smell so bad that even the community of skunks thinks that skunk stinks, as I like to say. And when it comes to Canaan, it was one of the stinkiest societies of all. It had reached a, a climax of evil. Now, when you think about God saying, I'm going to kill everything that breathes, like he did in Genesis chapter 6, you find in verse 6 of that passage that he says, here's the thing, I'm looking at them and every thought and intention of their heart is only evil. It is continually evil. And I've had enough and I regret that I've made man. And now I'm going to destroy him. That kind of reaching this boiling point, as I like to say, when dad gets off the couch, now you've been irritating him for a long time, but he's about to get off the couch now and deal with you. And when God reaches that point of, of you've crossed this line and God now is going to respond, it's certainly crossing this line here. It crossed the line in Sodom and Gomorrah where he says, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to take all the cities of the plains and destroy them. It, it, it got to the place of crossing the line in Genesis 6. The world is out of control. Every thought and intention and imagination of their heart is only continually evil. And in Canaan, these were not people sitting on their porch thinking about how to bless and encourage each other. This was an evil society. As a matter of fact, Leviticus chapter 18 is a good one for you to go through because everything in that chapter is prefaced with the statement in, Genesis, or in Leviticus 18 of these are the practices of those that you're going to dispossess. Don't practice what they do. I'm going to bring my judgment on them because of these things. And then you see the list and the list begins and it starts with things like incest, sexual immorality, homosexuality, bestiality. The list goes on and on and on in terms of the worst kinds of, of, of sexual perversion in that text. And God says, I've warned them. As a matter of fact, here's the reason for the delay, I think, one of the reasons, humanly speaking, of 40 years. And by the time they get to Rahab, Rahab goes, the fear of God is all over this place because of you guys. We see you as the agent of God. God is with you. We're all scared. We've been learning and hearing about you for years. What's the, what's the point? Well, God is continually warned these people in Canaan over and over and over in reaching that 
climax of sin. As one historian put it, Merle Unger, the brutality, lust, and abandon of the Canaanite mythology is far worse than elsewhere in the ancient Near East. If you're going to look at the Near East of the time of the Old Testament, here was the the cesspool of the worst of it. And the astounding characteristics of the Canaanite deities, that they had no moral character whatever, must have brought out the worst traits in their devotees and entailed many of the most demoralizing practices of the time, such as sacred prostitution. Oh, I forgot. In Leviticus 18, they are sacrificing their children to Molech, the the god Molech. I mean, they're taking their newborn children and sacrificing them and engaging in bestiality, homosexuality, uh, incest, adultery, the list goes on. And it says demoralizing, sacred prostitution, child sacrifice, and, and snake worship. These were the kinds of things going on in Canaan. Now, God could look at the whole world and say, here's a mini cesspool of everything I dealt with in Genesis 6, and I'm done with it. Now, just like when God came to Noah and said, here's what I'm going to do, God did not provide him a boat. He could have. He could have put an ark right there in, in the back 40 of his of his estate. But instead, he says, you're going to build it, and it's going to take years, years and years and years. And as the New Testament says, Noah now is a preacher of righteousness while he builds this ark, and all of his people build this ark. And what is that? A constant reminder. Just like when they heard that these Israelites are coming, and God God is with them, and this is the God that demands all these holy, holy requirements. Forty years ago, they got all these instructions about clean and unclean, about moral behavior, moral sexual behavior, eth- uh, ethical behavior, honesty, uh, faithfulness, uh, all the, 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 the fiduciary kinds of trust that were built into the laws of, of Exodus. We know their law, their high moral standards, these puritanical people, to, to use an anachronism, wandering around in the desert. Now, we, we're afraid they're going to come here. And we've heard about your God and your God that is with you. They had all kinds of time. Like those in the building, of, in the generation of those that watched the building of the ark, it was the worst of the worst. Sin had reached an extreme level in Canaan. It was the cesspool of moral iniquity. So God said, I'm going to destroy it all. Everything that breathes, Deuteronomy 20, verse 16, it's going to be done. Now again, that command came in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16. Now, you know your timelines because you've been to Old Testament survey now at Compass Bible Church. That was 45 years before, well, a lot of this happened, 42 years at least. You've got years to know the promise they're coming after us. And it's because we're sinful and it's because we're immoral and it's because we don't do what is right. Well, they didn't have the Bible. You understand Romans 2 has made this clear and I know that professors want to deny this, but the law of God is written on the hearts of people. No one has sex with an animal the first time and thinks, yeah, I was completely thinking this is a pure and wonderful thing that I'm doing. See, all of this is, is a process of crossing the line of our conscience, wearing it down and becoming, as the New Testament says, having a seared conscience. Everyone continues to violate their conscience to get into the kinds of levels of extreme sin that people were in by the time that they were uh, occupying the cesspool of moral iniquity in, in Canaan. So they had been violating the conscience that God had given them. And God had said, you fought me long enough. You're now going to be called out for complete destruction. That was 40 years plus before it actually happened. Persistent warnings were given. And I give you that passage in, in Joshua 2, because in Joshua 2, it's Rahab going off when the spies came and she hid the spies, the new round of spies, by the way, right, 40 years later, and saying, we're scared. Why? Because they had persistent warning. Plenty of time to repent. Or, by the way, you want to continue your sin? 
you know, eventually your sin's going to find you out and it'll catch up with you. And when you die, there's a second death to worry about that's far worse than the first death of having all your stuff taken away and you dying in Canaan. But leave. Everyone could have left. It was clear where they were headed. It was clear what they were doing. They were told you can make treaties with bordering nations, but you're not going to make any treaties with the people that live in the land of Canaan. No treaties, destroy them all. You had years to make land. You could tell your children, I hope that by the time these Israelites get here, you move out. Go to Amnon, go to Moab, go somewhere else. And they didn't. At least those that were exterminated. Those that were victims of genocide. And by the way, all you need to really do is repent. If you don't want to repent, you can leave and you don't have to have the destruction to your family like in the families of Egypt when God's plague came upon the firstborn. Your kids don't have to die. You can leave. But, you know, if you repent, which no one was willing to do apparently but Rahab, which gives you some sense of the ethics of the day. Rahab was a prostitute, so she wasn't a nun or anything, you understand. She wasn't a charity worker. She was, an, she was a prostitute. And so she's the one who becomes the moral paragon of, of sensitivity to conscience, gives in to fear and says, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with you guys, and, and I, I want to be spared. And God saves her, the only person in Jericho to be saved. This is the pattern. And again, if you want to stack the deck and the argument with the assumption, the foundational assumption that everyone's innocent, everyone's cool, everyone's copacetic, everyone really is lovely to our creator, then of course you're going to stumble over the conquest of the promised land. But God is holy, as we said in the sermon last weekend, the short sermon last weekend, that you and I, against the backdrop of God's holiness, would see how sinful we all are. Not to mention this particular group of people that were taking their newborn children and throwing them into the fire to the false gods. Yeah, we've heard of it. Our hearts are melting. There's no spirit left in us because of you. This is the things that Rahab said to the spies. So this is called a theodicy, by the way. If you don't know that word, theodicy, theos, the first part of that word, which means God, like theology. Deke, dike in Greek, D-I-K, long E, dike, dike, is the Greek word for justice. How do we justify God doing things like this? This is called a theodicy. How do we justify God being God and having a hospital full of children that are suffering? It starts with recalibrating our thinking about holiness and sin not to mention the promise of deliverance if there's repentance and persistent warnings that always come from God. All right, that might not be satisfying to you, but more reading of the Bible, and I think you will be satisfied as you put things in perspective about our sin and his holiness. The allotment of the land. Second half of the book, as I said, is all about the allotment of the land. They're giving land now permanently to the descendants of Abraham. Now, I know this is a bit of a mishmash and a small map up there, but this is basically how the tribes and their allotments panned out. If we zoom in on some of this with a different map with a little bit more nuance and detail, we can start here with a map that I think gives you one of the most unique things about the allotment of the tribes, and that is Simeon being completely enveloped by Judah. Judah is what you're going to hear about all throughout the Bible. It's important. Why is it important? It's important because Jesus is from the line of Judah. Why? Because David was from the line of Judah. Why? Because when it comes down to it, Bethlehem is in Judah, and eventually Jerusalem will be in Judah, which it's not right here in the current layout, but it will be eventually in biblical history, and the capital is going to be Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, Judah. Bethlehem, Judah. Jesus, Judah. Judah is very important, and it occupies some of the most important land. Within that, enveloped in that, like the whole of a donut here, is, is Simeon. And, you know, you can kind of see that here in the cartoon version of, of the map. This is another interesting feature, and you can see it on this map too. If you look on what we call the Transjordan, on the east side of the Jordan River, you've got Reuben down south, Gad, and Manasseh, which is really only half of Manasseh. When they came up from, well, first, 
and I don't, I don't think we have it on the map. Maybe we have it on this map. Don't have it on the map. Look at Simeon up here. You see where Simeon is? If you were to go south to the border of where Judah, just before Judah stops, is that yellow? I don't know what color that is. Yellow? You would have the city of Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea. Why was that important? Because they came through the desert to Kadesh Barnea to take the land. So they were coming in through the southern route. They failed the test of faith because they sent in their spies. They came back and didn't want to take the land. Now they wander. They go down to Sinai. They wander in the wilderness and they come back up this time along the east side of the Dead Sea. And when they come through the east side of the Dead Sea, you can see the top of the Dead Sea here, can you not? The first allotment of settlement goes to Reuben and then Gad as you move north and then all the way up and around surrounding the east side of the Sea of Galilee to Manasseh and they settle there. Now that was strange because a lot of the people, and there's really a dispute at the end of Joshua about the land and why they were afraid that they were compromising to be on that side of the Jordan River. Nevertheless, these three settlements, which today are not in the borders of Israel, as you know, these were the settlements initially of the first tribes to take their their property. They asked to have it. They were given it. And then when everyone crossed the Jordan, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh said, we'll continue to fight for you. As you do your daily Bible reading, you'll pick that up over the years and say, okay, I remember that. Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh were unique. And they were unique in that they took this property east of the Jordan River. The other half of Manasseh has got a big swath right in the middle of the land. If you go to Israel today, you've got this West Bank area that's between the northern and the southern area of, of Israel. You've got Jerusalem down low. You've got the Sea of Galilee up high. And you've got where Jesus was raised up there around the Sea of Galilee, Nazareth, and by the shores of the Sea of Galilee where he did all his Galilean ministry. And then down south in Jerusalem, of course, in Judah, very important part of the Holy Land, the, the land of Israel. Well, in between there, you had in Jesus' day the Samaritans. Well, before it was the Samaritans, when they settled in the book of Joshua, Manasseh and Ephraim had that midsection there, mostly Manasseh. And you also see in the middle of all that, Benjamin. So Benjamin, Judah, Simeon as we move down south. And then up north, Asher on the coastlands, Naphtali, Zebulun in the middle, Issachar moving up toward, it says the Sea of Kinnereth. Sea of Kinnereth. Kinnereth in Hebrew is um, harp because the Sea of Galilee looks like a harp. Uh, that's one of the names in scripture for the Sea of Galilee. The only other strange allotment that would be worth noting, it's much like Manasseh because half of Manasseh's tribes on one side of the Jordan River, I guess on your, to look at it your way, in the east side, and the other half is in the middle swath of Israel today, which is the West Bank today, which was Samaria back in the day. So you've got those split. Dan was the same way. You had Dan on the coastal part of Israel, Joppa, plays an important role in the New Testament with Peter and the sheet coming down and the conversion of Cornelius in Acts 10, Acts 9 and 10. Dan there, you see the allotment of Dan as best we can figure that out. That's certainly uh, where the majority of the Danites live. But then there was another little enclave of Dan that settled far north, up north. And that becomes important in the prophets. When we get to the prophets, if we get to that level of detail, the idolatry that took place there in Dan. So Dan is split in half as well, but a much smaller enclave up north. Anyway, I know we don't have time and if we were taking more extensive time to go through this, we could map them out and kind of memorize where they all go. All right, let's get to Judges. It is time to look at Judges. The title of Judges needs to be understood as distinct from what comes to your mind initially when you hear the word Judges. You think of Judge Judy or somebody in a robe with a Judge Lance Ito or whatever with a, a uh, gavel in his hand. We're not talking about that kind of judge. 
Tafat in, in Hebrew, at least in this context, is one who's governing. That's more of the picture, but I've got to distinguish it really from a king. And so we give it this translation, a judge, because he's adjudicating in one sense in that he's a leader. He's making decisions, but he's deciding things, not because there's a fender bender and he's got to adjudicate between two parties that see things differently, but he's making military decisions, but not like a king because he doesn't have that kind of authority. He's not given the right to tax anybody. He's not given the right to keep a standing army. He's a leader who comes on the scene for a particular purpose. And as we see, as it lives, plays out in the book of Judges, he's an agent of God's deliverance. God has to enlist someone to be a military leader and to be a peacetime governor once that military campaign is over. And that's the role that he plays, or she plays, the judges, an agent of deliverance. It's temporary leadership in a crisis. That's a good way to think of it. So when you read the book of Judges, or you see it in your Bible, you know, and you go through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, when you see Judges, don't think judge, robe, gavel, courtroom, think deliverer, think temporary leadership, military leader, peacetime governor. That's the longer title of the book, I suppose. One who's leading, one who's governing. Think deliverers. That's the shorthand way. Joshua deliverers. That'd be a better way in your mind to think of the book of Judges. That's the title. Time frame of the book, Joshua dies in 1390, and that's the first sentence out of the, out of the gate in Judges chapter 1 verse 1. The first apostasy that takes place takes place in 1375 in chapter 2. So we get an establishing chapter in chapter 1 of Judges. It's going to set the stage for what's coming. And then you see what's happening here, and we'll call it the cycle of Judges. It happens 12 times in the book of Judges. Now, there are 14 people that carry the title judge in the scripture in this period of the Judges, and there's 12 of them depicted in judges. And so we got this cycle 12 times over, which is an important number, by the way. I'm not a numerologist, but I am recognizing that we often see these, these numbers and they're important. And when it comes to the writing of this book, we got a captured picture of 12 deliverers that deliver the people for 332 years. And that's a long period of defeat. You've covered you know, just a short period of time, 30 years if you looked at everything in Joshua, but really when you get down to it, about five to seven years of conquest, and you got the settlements that take some years, but then you got a book that lasts, the deliverers last 332 years. And while the word deliverer seems all too positive for this book, it's really not a happy book because we need deliverance 12 times in the book. This period comes to an end, the last judge, doesn't come to an end with his birth, but I at least wanted to mark his birth at about 1100 BC. So the birth of Samuel, the last judge. I said there are 14 people that have this title. The other one, strangely enough, that carries this title, who's a priest, is Eli, called the judge. And he serves as a judge in being a deliverer of sorts and uh, not a good one. As a matter of fact, you'll see this spiraling down, 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 down in the book of Judges. So the birth of Samuel, that's not the end of the period. Really, the end of the period of Judges is 14, 1043 when Saul becomes the king. When Saul is the king, we start what we call the period of the monarchy in Israel. When we have a king sitting on a throne who is able now to tax the people, he is able to have a standing army. He's a ruler in, in perpetuity, at least in his lifetime, because he is going to always be the judge, the, the continual one. The period of the judges being called on the scene when they're needed, that ended. And that ended with Samuel. So you had the 12 judges of judges, the deliverers of, of judges. You had Eli called the judge, and then you had Samuel, the last judge. And he's a very 
important pivotal person. He's a judge of sorts in terms of leading and delivering. He's a prophet, of course, and then Eli, a priest. So it's an interesting mishmash of these roles. We call that the theocracy, by the way. The theocracy is God is really playing the role of monarch, but he's got these offices that he needs to fill, and he can pick from any tribe, any person, anywhere, and say, okay, I need you to be the prophet. I need you to be the deliverer. So you're going to be a temporary leader here and deliver the people. So this is the time frame of Judges, the death of Joshua. And if you want to look beyond the book of Judges, you can go all the way to the, first, the book of 1 Samuel. And I gave you the key chapter back in the first week, chapter 8, when Saul becomes the king. There's the period of the theocracy where God establishes them in their land and does not give them a king. But the book of Judges, 12 times over, 332 years. Who wrote the book? Back of your worksheet. The Bible does not tell us who wrote the book, but Jewish tradition, the Talmud says that Samuel wrote the book, and they're very fastidious and careful about these kinds of things, and they probably have good reason for it, although we don't have all the reasons they assert that. Nevertheless, there are some hints in the book, and it's not a bad guess, and because Samuel was such an important spokesperson for God and prophet, uh, it makes perfect sense that he was the author of this book, and that's what they've been saying in Jewish history from the beginning, as far back as we can go. Most of these writings of the Talmud, by the way, go back to about the 4th, 5th, 6th century AD, at least for the codified writings of the instructions based on the scripture. A lot of this is really a rehash of the Midrash, which is the earliest of all. But the Talmud has got commentaries on everything. And they go into great detail about all the books of the Old Testament. And they've always assigned Samuel to the authorship of Judges. Moderns will question it, of course, as they do everything. But we'll, we're probably in good company to say Samuel is the author. What's the main concept? I gave you this word, the timeline overview the first week. But if we're going to think of the deliverers or the judges, we need to think of the word failure. Because it is a series of failures. Failure number one, let's break this down, to destroy the Canaanites. If you look at the, the, the core problem of which all the rest in the book seems symptomatic, it starts with the fact that they were given a command to go in and exterminate the Canaanites, and they didn't do it. They did it well enough, at least starting with Joshua and Caleb, and Joshua and Caleb had to continually, even at the end of their lives, give speeches about, you guys finished this job, we need to do this work. Now, you want to go back and worship the gods of your fathers across the, the, the rivers, then go. But we've got to do our work here. And the command was to destroy the civilization of the Canaanites. And everything setting up for that in 1440, 1444, when the Pentateuch was being written, 1445 to 1440, you had all these statements about the reasons they needed to come in and deal with Canaan the way that God was instructing Joshua to do it. And that was because their sin was so bad and their gods were so so permissive that if you go in and follow their patterns, God is going to turn, the real God's going to turn against you and you'll be destroyed like they are. So you've got to get rid of the Canaanites. Let me quote a little extended passage here, four verses in Judges chapter two. I'll just read it for you on the screen here. Now the angel of the Lord said, I brought you up from Egypt and I brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. Again, they could make treaties with the bordering countries, but they could not make treaties with the people. You shall break down their altars. That was the key thing, and it always comes first. They have a worship pattern that is an abomination to me, and, and it leads to an abominable lifestyle in your lives. You need to be done with their worship system, but you have not obeyed my voice. See, that's how the book of Judges starts. It starts with the failure of them to comply with the command to exterminate 
the Canaanites. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. You didn't do it. You wouldn't do it. And now you're going to be stuck with this problem. They shall become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. There's going to be a constant temptation for you now. I set up a set of commands that would have made this a whole lot better for you. But now that you didn't do it, they're going to stick around. And I think it's a lot of misplaced compassion, by the way. Trust me, if you want to be a righteous person, you better be as bold as a lion. If God gives you a command, you better not fail to to carry out that command. When it came to them killing the Canaanites, God wanted them, much like the commands in the Old Testament, when you had a murderer or you had someone caught in incest or whatever the situation was, you were to, as it says, show them no pity. And that command we see repeated throughout these books from Genesis all the way through, through Judges, because if you showed them pity, you would be stuck with the snare and the compromise in your society. And he says, they're going to be a th- they're going to be a thorn in your side and their gods are going to be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the people of Israel, as often happens, and it did at Kadesh Barnea too back in Numbers, they got it. They wept. They were cut to the, to the core. They lifted up their voices and they wept. They knew they had failed. And it goes on to talk about the fact that even though they said, we're sorry, we're sorry, God said, I told you what to do. You didn't do it. I gave you plenty of time to obey and you didn't obey me. So failure not to destroy the Canaanites. Number two, a continual a series of failures in terms of spiritual apostasy. Apostasy. Uh, apostasy, I use that word in the opening of this discussion regarding this book, but you need to understand what an important biblical word that is, theological word. To be an apostate isn't to be someone who is a degenerate and has never been exposed to the truth. An apostate is someone who's been thoroughly exposed to the truth. See, we, we in the New Testament terms, it's like the dog that returns to its vomit. It's one thing for you not to know the way of righteousness right, and miss it, and refuse it because conscience and creation is crying out against you. It's another to have the truth now piled on top of that, and then you reject it. Hebrews says, if you know all these things, you've been thoroughly acquainted with them, and then you're willing to say, no, that's called apostasy. You've got every advantage of all the light, and you willfully and stubbornly turn your back on it. That's the picture throughout the book of Judges, the constant apostasy of the nation of Israel. They knew what was right. They were told to do what was right. They turned their back on God continually, and God says there's going to be judgment for that. Later in that same chapter, let me read a little another extended passage for you. Nine verses. And Israel, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So we went from the failure to exterminate the Canaanites, now the failure to continue to obey me with the temptation of all their gods on the fringes of your society, and among you, actually. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger, and they abandoned the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers. Here's the pattern. Who plundered them? So you got external forces coming in and oppressing them. And they sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies. Now they become slaves so that they could no longer withstand their enemy. They were weak. They were losing in battle. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. And the Lord had warned, which by the way is the principle and pattern you'll always see in scripture. It's everywhere as the Lord had sworn them. And they uh, were in terrible distress. And when the Lord, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. So there were the deliverers, the judges. Yet they did not listen to their judges. So now you got leaders and they don't listen to their leaders. For they whored after other gods and they bowed down to them. They soon turned aside the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commands of the Lord and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hands of their enemies all the days of that judge. For the Lord had 
was moved to pity by their groaning. So they call out, he's responding because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and they were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods. So there's the cyclical downward spiral that we see 12 times over in the book of Judges. Serving them and bowing down to them, they did not stop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. I mean, they were involved in, and the book of Judges tells us this, the continual downward spiral that included their return to the kinds of things that were warned about in Leviticus 18, which was the sacrifice of their own families to the gods and to the fire. They became human, they became involved in human sacrifice. So this is the cycle of judges. And I gave you a little chart there just to give you this sense of how it goes round and round and round. They start with obedience. Things are going well. And at one time, it starts, I guess, ultimately with them coming in obediently to the land to take the land by faith as Joshua and Caleb led them. But then they fell into apostasy. They don't fall into apostasy. That's the wrong way to put it. Scratch that. Correction. They turned their back on God and stubbornly marched into apostasy. Everyone does. You don't slip into apostasy. And then God says, fine, there's a price to pay for that. You're going to be oppressed. There's going to be people that are going to come against you. You're not going to be able to withhold your borders. You're going to have people that are going to plunder you. You're going to have people that are going to sell you into slavery. You're going to be oppressed. They're going to then cry out to God. God, this is too much. It's painful. I'm hurting. The Bible says God's going to show pity on them and he's going to give them a judge, a deliverer. You're going to have a deliverer and that deliverer is going to deliver you. The judge is given. He puts an army together. He puts a force together. God says, I'm going to be with the judge and I'm going to deliver them. And they're going to return to a status of walking with God. Problem is they would then fall into apostasy. They would get oppressed. They would call out to God. God would give them a judge. They would be delivered. They'd be obedient until again they fell into apostasy, got oppressed, called to God. Judge was given, delivered, obedience. This thing happened 12 times. This is exactly what the book is. It's a horrific ride on a terrible vortex of degeneration into increasing levels of sin. So it's not a happy book you probably want to do your devotions in if you're a new Christian. But perhaps you should. It may help you. Key people, well, there are 12 of them. 12 judges. Let's look at them with a chart. Othnel is our first judge. He's the younger brother, or could be the nephew, the language is a little ambiguous, of Caleb. Caleb was, of course, renowned. Othnel was already known as a heroic, heroic individual. He had taken part in conquering of Canaan, it says in Joshua 15. Othnel, as the first judge, makes clear that Israel departed quickly. Here he was, part of the team that won the nation, and now he has to deliver them from oppression. The Arameans were the oppressors in this case. They came from Mesopotamia. They were of an ancient Aramaic-speaking peoples inhabiting Aram, or modern Syria, part of the Babylonian culture of this particular time. Babylon is between the rivers, Mesopotamia, between the Potamias, between the rivers. And they came over from that fertile land into Israel and captured. And this all takes place in chapter 3. They were oppressed for eight years. Othniel delivers them, the brother or nephew of uh, Caleb, and they have peace for 40 years. So eight years of oppression and slavery and losing. And then in the time and lifetime of Othniel, you get 40 years of peace. Ehud comes along. Ehud, after enjoying 40 years with no oppression, you had 40 good years, that's a good run. The Moabites come in and begin subjugating Benjamin because of the sin of the land. Ehud was from the tribe of Benjamin, not from Judah. He assassinated the king of Moab. It's a great story. If you haven't read it recently, don't read it while you eat, but a lot of drama there. That's in chapter 3 as well. After 18 years of oppression by Moab, he now then ushers in 80 years of peace. That's a good run. Shamgar is next. That's the third key person in this book. His efforts were directed toward the Philistines. The Philistines were from the southwest, kind of uh, where the Gaza Strip is today. And we don't get a lot of information about Shamgar. 
We don't know much. All we know is in chapter 3, we don't know how long the oppression was by the Philistines, and we don't know how long the peace was that lasted. The Bible doesn't tell us. Then we get a very interesting story of Deborah and Barak. Deborah is the judge, and Barak becomes the military commander. So they partner together in this process of deliverance. Uh, in this case, the Canaanites are the culprits. They are the oppressors. And again, the Canaanites wouldn't be there if it weren't for the fact that they had failed to exterminate the Canaanite. This all takes place, as, this takes place in the book chapters 4 and 5. Deborah is introduced to us as a prophetess of God, by the way, which is interesting, much like Samuel. He has a role in teaching the people Barak had come into this connection as a military commander. Anyway, this is what the iron chariots of the Canaanites, I don't remember the story, but God used the weather even to help make those heavy chariots sink in the mud because of the, uh, of the weather. That was a good divine assistant there for Barak. 20 years of oppression by the Canaanites and 40 years of peace in the wake of their leadership. Gideon is next. If you don't know any story from Judges, you probably know the story of Gideon, if not first, at least the second most famous person, it seems, in Judges. The Midianites, as you might remember from Sunday school lessons about Gideon, he uh, is the one with three supernatural signs to convince him that he should do it. He's from the smallest clan, and he doesn't believe that he's the one who should be delivering, and God has to prove it to him, and he goes to great lengths to have God prove it to him, which was testing God's patience in the passage. And this, by the way, is all in chapters 6 through 8 of the book. And you remember the fleece, make it dry, make it wet, all of that. And then when he finally gets that army together, I think I said this recently in a sermon, maybe it was somewhere else I was preaching, but he ends up taking this big army who's ready to fight. God says, there are too many of these Israelites for me to give you the Midianite, which is a strange way to put it. When you assemble an army to try and release your people from bondage, you think, I need the biggest army as possible. The Midianites are experienced fighters. We're not experienced. And God says, too many. Tell them to go home. Anyone wants to go home, they go home. They lost half of their army that day. And then they had that test. Remember the test to find out who's going to be on, on the final cut? It's going to be the guys that go down to the, the river and drink. Now, it's a little confusing when you read it. You've got to read it very carefully. But the people that end up staying on the team to fight against the Midianites are the people that lap the water like a dog. And dogs are not carried on airplanes back then in, in little bags, handbags. Dogs, dogs were the vermin of the ancient world. I mean, this, these, he basically, God forces him to, with a small group and the people that, that eat like rats, I mean, that, that lap their, their, their water like a dog. And with that group, God says, oh, now we're ready. And the reason is we don't want you to think that this is about your hand or your might or your power. Seven years of oppression by the Midianites, and it was bad oppression, but 40 years of peace when Gideon was done. Tears down the altars of Baal. It was a, it's a great story, and it takes up a lot of space in the book of Judges. And yet it's not a fantastic story at the end because it creates the ephod that becomes a stumbling block and becomes an idol, actually, in Israel. His son then, Abimelech, is they want him to become the next judge and the leader. They actually want to make him king. Uh, he's not a judge, although some people in the list of judges, if you look at an Old Testament survey book, you might find some that call him a judge, but he's not. He's a usurper. He shouldn't be in the list of judges, and so he's not on our list. And I do think... Um, I think it was strategic that there were 12 of them. Nevertheless, Abimelech is not next. Tola is next. We don't know much about Tola. As a matter of fact, we think this is one that's actually, if you add up all the numbers of the dates and the, and the periods of time of peace that are given to us in the book of Judges, it's more than we can allow. There's more than 332 years because the timeline's pretty well set by the markers that we have. So we know that some of these judges have to overlap. And because of the background of Tola and the next one, Jair, you have 
from different areas in the map, and I'm going to show you the map in a minute, we probably have, like you have in the, in, in the kings, when we get to the 40 kings of Israel, co-regents. No, they're not regents because they're not kings, but you've got people fighting oppression in different places in the country at the same time. And that's why when you take the markers of the timeline of judges and you add up all the years that are on our list that we have, you, you, you've got more time than we actually have to fit it into the book. Not by much, but that's why some of these are overlapping. We don't know much about Tola. We don't know who the oppressors were. We know his stories in chapter 10. It's very short. We don't know how many years the oppression took place by this unknown group of foreigners, but we do know that the peace that was described coming in his wake was 23 years. So you see the pattern. The, the numbers always change, but the cycle is the same. Number seven, Jair is the next. Jair probably is a contemporary judge with Tola, as I said. We think Tola served west of the Jordan and Jair to the east side. Again, we don't have much on Jair. It's a very short passage, but he's in chapter 10 as well. We don't know the oppressor. We don't know how long the oppression took place, which maybe is another hint even. It's the first time we don't have that, that we, we probably have these rising up in smaller ways, and Tola and Jair were called by God as deliverers to deliver them. Jephthah is the next one. He's probably the third or fourth most famous judge in the book of Judges. We know him because of a vow that he made if he had victory over the Ammonites. The Ammonites were the oppressors. His story takes place in the rest of chapter 10 there. And he liberates the country from the Ammonites. But he's known for the vow that he makes. Whatever comes out of the door, I will sacrifice to God. And the first thing to come out of the door after the battle with the Ammonites is his daughter. You remember the story? And the normal reading of the text, if you just read it at face value, and I'm asked this all the time on our call-in radio show, did he really do that? And there's other ways to try and soften it. And, well, maybe he just, he just vowed to keep her a virgin and, and not marry her off. That's, that's not the plain reading of the text. Well, why would he do that? God wouldn't approve of that. You're right. God doesn't approve of most of what goes on in the book of Judges. And this is where your hermeneutics come into play. You've got to read the text and understand that what is being said here is a truthful depiction of what happened. This is not something in the Bible when we read the Bible. And if you see a narrative like this, we call it a narrative text. If the genre is narrative, we're just having, having a truthful depiction of what happened. You've got to go elsewhere to directives of what God has said to do or not to do to look at whether or not that's a good thing to do or not to do. Just because he's a deliverer who sacrifices his daughter in human sacrifice, we already know that's an abomination to God. God has made that clear. So that's a dumb thing to do and he never should have done it. And yet it looks like that's what he did in this passage. And certainly something we should not do. As we like to say, you should never make a prescription out of a description unless you have a principle somewhere, some kind of directive somewhere in Scripture. So we don't take a description of something, that's a narrative, and make it a directive, an application, unless I've got a principle or a directive somewhere in the Scripture that makes that clear that I should do that. The Ammonites oppressed for 18 years and the peacetime didn't last long. And you can imagine, if he's really sacrificing his daughter and he's the deliverer, the spiritual bar is not very high at this particular point. And again, it is a downward spiral. Ibsen. Ibsen is next. We don't know much about Ibsen. Chapter 12 gives us that story. The oppressor is unknown. The time of oppression is unknown. The resulting peace is described as seven years. And these three actually go together. Elon, don't know the oppressor. Again, very short reference. Don't know how long the oppression. We know that 10 years is the result. Abdon. So Ibsen, Elon, Abdon. Don't know the oppressor. Do know the chapter. Don't know the years of, of opposition. Doesn't state it. Years of peace, eight. Most commentators will say these three probably were also contemporaneous judges dealing with issues in different geographic areas. And just a reminder to us that God is at work all over the borders of the country 
dealing with intrusions of idolatry in various places and oppression. Lastly, the most famous or second famous, maybe Gideon's the famous, I don't know. Depends on what Sunday school you went to. But Samson is the ending judge in Judges. Two more are named Judges, Eli and Samuel. But he's the last one in this book. And uh, it is a sad story as well. Again, if he's the deliverer of the Philistines, and you know the story, you read about it in chapters 13 through 16, it's a story that's filled with compromise. I mean, he's a womanizer. He's got all kinds of weaknesses. He can't keep a secret, among other things. Samson is a, is a mess and ends up dying in disgrace and dishonor with his eyes gouged out in the uh, opposing camp. Interesting story. Mother was barren. Like a lot of these barren women in the Bible, their kids end up doing something important in biblical history, though he's not a paragon of any kind of virtue. Philistines oppressed for a long time. You can see the numbers here. I mean, 40 years of oppression and only 20 years of peace. And by the way, if you picture him as a big, strong man, I wouldn't picture him as a big, strong man. The whole point was everyone was shocked at how much power he had. He probably was a normal-looking guy with a great bit of strength. He didn't look like our former governor in his heyday. He probably looked like some normal guy, and yet he had tremendous strength that God gave him. So those are the important figures in the book of Judges, the key people. Now, the divine commentary in all this, I think, is important for you to catch. And again, a little bit of an extended passage I'd like to read for you. Psalm 106, it's up on the screen. If you go through Psalm 106, here is the, here's the section of Psalm 106 is about the history of the Judges. And they did not destroy the peoples. Again, you th- can't think of failure and just say failure is the cycle of judges. No, failure was they didn't push the people out. They didn't kill the people that God asked them to kill. They didn't destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. But they mixed with the nations and they learned to do as they did, the psalmist says. This is a song they sang in Israel to remember the failure of, ju- of judges. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. Same word over there in Judges chapter 1. And they, look at this, they sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons, Moloch. And they poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with their blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts, and they played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. And he gave them into the hands of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them. 12 in the book of Judges, but they were rebellious in their purpose, purposes and they were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress. When he heard their cry for their sake, he remembered his covenant and he relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love 12 times in the book of Judges. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. That is a perfect summation. Of course, it's God's own commentary on this book over there in Psalm 106. Another phrase I would be remiss if I didn't quote to you, twice it's repeated verbatim in Judges 17.6 and 21.25, and that is, in those days there was no king in Israel. And that's not just a statement about the political structure of the nation. This is a statement about their hearts. God said, I want to be your king. When Samuel got so angry, as we'll see next time, about the people wanting Saul to be the king, God had to tell Samuel, it's not you they're rejecting, it's me as the king. I'm, I'm their king. We want a theocracy, and they don't have me as their king. In those days they had no king in Israel. It's not that they didn't have a Saul, a David, or a Solomon. They didn't have God as their king. Therefore, what happens when God is not your king in a society? Everyone does what is right in your own eyes. This should be the headlines of today's newspaper. Just do whatever you want. We don't think there's any consequences. And as we go through a list like that, a 333-year history. You know, our nation's not even that old, you understand. 
I mean, you want to think about how God deals with sin and nations. I know we're not the covenant people of Israel, but as the Bible says, sin is a disgrace to any people, and God is going to respond when, when people sin. Sodom and Gomorrah was not God's covenant people, right? Here is, here is a group of people that God says, I've had enough. Everyone on the planet in Genesis 6, he has authority over us just by his rights as our creator. So this is going on all over the land, and this isn't for you to write down or anything, but just to kind of highlight where these things happen. Othnel was down south. Ehud was right there in the center, right around the Jebusite city, or what would be Jerusalem. Shamgar was far up north. Deborah and Barak, right in the heart of, of, of the country. Gideon, not far from the Sea of Galilee. Tola, a little bit, a little further down. Jair, in the Transjordan up north. Jephthah, in the Gad and Manasseh area there, the Transjordan. Isban, Elon, Abdon, Samson. All over the country, you had these people popping up and dealing with the threats that were self-inflicted. All right, Ruth, with 10 minutes. Ruth, it's a short book, we can do it. Ruth, in Hebrew, literally, as best we can understand, linguistically means friendship or something close to that in Hebrew. It's a great name. She, of course, is the heroine, the main character in the book. She's the hero of the book. She's a Moabitess. Remember, uh, Moab was oppressing Israel. Moab, remember Balak, the king? Balaam, the prophet for hire, Moab. They're the eastern neighbors of Israel in modern-day Jordan. The name of the nation, Moab, comes after the son of Lot, which was the product of incest. But you remember that horrific, sad story there? They get their father drunk in Genesis. Anyway, he was the patriarch of that land of Moab. So it's not this Moab, by the way, just so you know. That's what I always think of when I read Moab in the Bible. I always think of that Moab. No, it's this Moab right here. Moab is on the other side of the Dead Sea. Author. Who's the author? We don't know. An author is not listed. Again, the Talmud says it is Samuel, and I'm probably going to vote with them. They, they probably have good reason for that. The date, we've got to be in the circa category here. Somewhere, uh, we assume, around 1000 B.C. It's got to be before Samuel dies, if Samuel, Samuel indeed wrote it. And if you think about the book, at the very end of the book, we get a lineage, and the lineage stops with David. So... We assume it's when David at least was on the scene, at least post-anointing, and Solomon would be listed, of course. We still have United Kingdom. You would have Solomon on the list if it was by the time Solomon was on the horizon, but we don't have Solomon's name. So it makes perfect sense that it's somewhere close to 1000 B.C. Relation to the timeline books, this happens during the time of the Judges. This uh, is really given to us, I think, as a bright spot. It not only sets us up for the monarchy and for the birth of David, which is the king after God's own heart, but it gives us a sense that there is righteousness in the time, even though there's so much apostasy in the land. If you think about it, the general theme of Judges is that everyone who's in Israel was chasing after the gods of the foreigners. And here's a story about a foreigner that converts to the God of Israel. That's, that's the twist in this book. And certainly is a book that gives us hope and sets up the genealogy of David. And his great-grandmother is a foreigner from Moab. The outline of the book, very simple. Ruth follows Naomi. There's famine in the land. It starts in chapter 1. You know the, the book I trust. Which, by the way, you should tie that to what's going on in the book of Judges. When there's famine, famine makes you vulnerable to oppression. It makes you vulnerable to other nations like when you saw the patriarchs go to Egypt during the famine when Joseph had to deliver them. So it makes perfect sense. In light of Deuteronomy 11 and passages like that that speak of famine coming upon the people when God sees his people getting into idolatry, we assume this is the cycle of judges. We don't know which cycle it's in, but they were in the midst of famine, which is a sign of God's judgment. 
uh, Elimelech and Naomi are the, the, the parents. They go off to Moab to find relief where there's not a famine. They have two sons. They marry two Moabite women. The two sons die. The father dies. The famine is over. We assume the judge likely delivered the oppressor at that particular point. Think about the cycle of judges. The famine is lifted. They say, great, I'm going to go back. Well, there's only Naomi left and two daughter-in-laws. Naomi says, go Go back. I know you married my sons, but I can't have any more sons for you. If I go back, I've got to find a husband. I've got to have sons. Are you going to wait around until those sons grow up? Just go back to your homelands and start over. And Ruth is the one that tenaciously says, no, I'm going to go with you. Your gods be my gods. Your home, my home. I'm going to stick with you. So her tenacious, faithful, resolved love to follow her mother-in-law back to a foreign land is quite remarkable. And then she gets there and she starts to care for Naomi. She starts gleaning in the fields. Gleaning is the law in the law of Moses where you could go and you could collect your food if you worked for it. Interestingly enough, that's always the principle. You don't beg for it. You go out and work for it unless, of course, you're fully disabled. Uh, That was the exception. And then we're supposed to care for those people in society. But the rule was if you're able-bodied, you're supposed to get out there and earn your own food. Well, I don't have any money. I don't have a job. Great. The law for the farmer was don't glean your fields all the way to the edges. So take your horse and your, your, your mules, your your oxen and just turn those corners and don't worry about getting every bit of your your field and let the poor come and graze among it. Well, Ruth goes there out in the day to harvest and glean the corners of the field. She's poor. Naomi's poor. She doesn't have a husband. Ruth doesn't have a husband. So she's collecting food for her mother and she goes to the fields of Boaz and Boaz, very compassionate, is very generous to Ruth. There's an underlying romance that's starting to bud there, you can see. And in chapter 3, she starts to seek a kinsman redeemer, which is the key concept that you need to remember. There's no land that is supposed to be given to another family in perpetuity. You are supposed to have all the land every Sabbath, Sabbath. In other words, every 49 years, when you have that 50th year of Jubilee, all the land is supposed to revert back to the original tribes. When you have the land allotted to those tribes, everyone's supposed to keep that land in their family. You can sell it, and when there's hard times like a famine, you can get relief, and you may sell and go to another country like they did, Elimelech did, we assume, and now he comes back. She doesn't have any land, so she goes, Naomi does, at prompting of her mother-in-law to find a kinsman redeemer. She finds out Boaz is the kinsman redeemer, or at least a relative in her tribe, and so she, she says, go make a plea and a pitch to be redeemed, and, and so you got to know that about the perpetuity of the land. The second thing you need to remember is the lineage. You, you have to have an heir. The male heir, you have to provide for a death in the family. So in other words, if Naomi has no husband and her daughter has no husband, then you need to have the closest male relative who's willing to bear a child with her so the name and the family of Elimelech can, re, can, can not only populate and, and have a descendant, a, a lineage, but they can then assume and work the land that is going to return to them at the, at the year of Jubilee. So you've got to have the male heir. So she's got to find that kinsman redeemer. And she realizes that Boaz is in the running in that at least he's of the same tribe. They're from Bethlehem, remember, which becomes the city of David. And this is the great-grandmother, as I'm about to tell you, as you probably know. So Naomi encourages Ruth to seek redemption from Boaz, to take her into his family, carry on the line. But there's a closer relative. It's discovered in chapter 3 that is one tier closer that has the rights to be the kinsman redeemer if he so chooses. Well, he doesn't want to. I'm sure it was a complicating factor for him. It was almost comical the way that plays out. But in chapter 4, Ruth ends up marrying Boaz. She takes him as the kinsman redeemer. He redeems her. He goes to the city, to the gates. Remember the whole 
you know, public scene that goes on and marries a, a Moabitess, which is interesting. Here you've got this foreigner and they have a son. And the son is Obed. And Obed has a son. His name is Jesse. Jesse has several sons. And one of his sons is the youngest, who's a shepherd, becomes the king. His name is David. David has a son named Solomon. And we have the lineage that goes all the way to Christ. So this is Christ's great, 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 great grandmother. And uh, it's a foreigner. I know everyone wants to look at the scripture and say, oh, in the Old Testament, God seems so ethnocentric. He's so, you know, prejudicial. God's going to great lengths to see people like Rahab, to see people like Ruth, a Moabitess, be filtered into, as we studied in Luke, the lineage of Christ. And he turns these people who have the right heart into the right privileged people in the right line to be blessed by God. That's all I had for you tonight. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. I know there's a lot of data, and we didn't take a lot of time for devotional thoughts or application, but we are grateful that we have a kinsman redeemer. As foreigners, as Paul said, having no inheritance, having no blessing, having no hope, being outside of the nation of Israel, we were Gentiles. And worse yet, as it says in Ephesians 2, we were by nature children of wrath, just like those in Canaan. And our sin may not have been as notorious as theirs, but certainly we are fully worthy of your just and righteous punishment. And yet we can not only be spared, and we are every day we live on the planet, we have our lives spared. We have a sentence of death that should be upon us. And yet you let us live on your planet, breathe your air, eat your food. But beyond that, you've redeemed us. You've sent your son to be our kinsman redeemer and to take us into his family, to adopt us. And God, we're so grateful for that, to be heirs and to be privileged to have an inheritance that is sealed and guaranteed for us, not by our own works or deeds, but because of the righteousness of Christ and being credited all of his righteousness. And so, God, we sit here and study your word back to the ancient days, 3,000 years ago. We study these stories, and yet we recognize how privileged we are that all those pictures of redemption are buried there in the scripture for us to have some appreciation for what you've done for us. And we want to have that tonight as we end and drive home and get back to our routines and get up tomorrow to do what we've got to do. And we just want to be very grateful that you've redeemed us. Thank you so much for that. Dismiss us now with a sense of your blessing and presence in our life, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.